Today's reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, y'all. Hey, that is uh, Landon and Sydney Arnold, Life Point Stewart's Creek, newest newlyweds. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, man, I asked them to do that this morning. It's so good. You know, last week we talked about marriage, and it's just so good to see um, our next generation uh, embracing the gift of marriage. And, uh, and uh, just, man, what a great uh, sight that that is, the health of our church. Uh, let me uh, really quickly, my name is R.C. Ford. I'm the campus pastor here. And so um, I'm glad that you're visiting uh, today. If you're a, a guest um, or somebody that's been here for a while and I haven't met you yet, I, I would ask you to come by and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. Um, and so hope you can do that when you get done today. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, I talked about the idea uh, and the hope that I had that our, our children would begin to join us in our corporate gathering um, in addition to their, their regular environments that they participate in on Sunday morning, which are also beneficial. Uh, and so I'm glad to see some more kids in the room. Uh, kids, thank you all for coming in. We're, 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 we're glad you all are in big church today. Um, something else, Kathy Ropp, our preschool and kids director, has tried to help with that too. On the back of the, the door, right when you go out, or come in, uh, there's some sermon notes for our children. So if you didn't grab one today, grab one next week when you come in. We just want to make sure that we have a welcoming environment uh, for our kids uh, because we love our kids here at the Creek. Uh, as we start today, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis uh, 3. We'll obviously be there here today. And um, as we do that, um, I want to tell you about a, nam- a man named Edward or Edwin Arkeedy. And he was a professor at the Pennsylvania School of Law from 1928 to 1948. Um, And every single year, uh, Professor Keedy, before he would start class, his brand new class every year for 20 years, he would come in and the students would walk into his room and there was a blackboard on the back. And he wrote two numbers on the blackboard, just two numbers, four, two. And so he would step back and he would ask the students, okay, what's the solution? And some would just start shouting out, well, two, some would say six, and some would say eight, just randomly uh, spitting out these solutions. And every single year, uh, Professor Keedy would do the same thing. He would just shake his head because he could not believe the collective error that they all had. And he 
he responded to them. He says, he says, you cannot possibly know the solution because I haven't even told you what the problem is. It is impossible for you to know the solution until you know what the problem is. That was Professor Keaty's point. Uh, Church, we all know that there's something wrong with the world and all the people in it, us included. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that we do not live in the midst of Eden. We live in the midst of evil. Uh, Paul, in 2 Timothy, kind of referred to the last days um, that we are currently living in. And he said this about the days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pretty accurate. If I would add or elaborate on Paul's words, um, I would say that people today are just too consumed with believing in self to believe in God. Self-sufficiency, self-rule, and self-love is king today. These are things that we all see very well we see things, and we've talked about these things as a church. Gender is now fluid. Um, Adams and Steves are getting married. Uh, people get to or think that they can determine their own level of truth, and, and tolerance is just not accepted at all. No judgment at all from man and definitely not from God. Definitely not from God. Uh, our currency should, if it was really more accurate, our currency should say, in money we trust, not in God we trust. We have cultural crises all around us, um, inflation, violent crimes, gun violence, the new one, vaping is a new one. Um, we see things like uh, abortion being called health care. We see racial pride and segregation being celebrated more than it ever has been before. Birth rates are falling, mental illness rising. Our culture is so sexually debased, it's Corinthian to the core. On top of that, all of our personal lives are are just filled with sadness and suffering, headaches and heartaches. On top of all of that, if that wasn't bad enough, then of course there's Alabama football, okay? Um, We love to dig on Alabama football here. I think it's probably because they beat us like fools every year. Uh, All of those things being said, they all leave us pondering and asking the existential question, what is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? And doesn't everybody have an opinion about that, by the way? (laughs) I mean, like your grandparents, they got opinions, Politicians campaigning, they all have opinions about them. But here's the reality, no one's opinion matters. Opinions don't matter at all. The only thing that matters is what the word of God says. 
Societies change, morals change, peoples change, but the word of God remains the same. And the word of God, according to Genesis 3 today, as we go back to the beginning of the origin, we're going to see what's wrong with the world is sin. And how do you fix the world? Jesus, right? Nothing too complicated there. You probably knew what we were going there with, but that is what we're talking about today. Uh, The way we're going to see that happen, we're going to look at two main sections today. Uh, First, we're going to look at the origin of sin by looking at Satan employing the art of confusion. That was his scheme and his method. And then we're going to look at the origin of salvation by looking at the Bible's first gospel message concerning Jesus. All right? So the first thing let's do um, as we get ready, before we just kind of dive right in, if you haven't been with us, um, let me catch you up. If you have been, let me just put ourselves in the context before we start reading Genesis 3. Uh, Right now, Adam, Eve, two chapters, live in Eden. And they live in perfect concert with creation. Uh, They live in crystal clear waters, exquisite greenery. There is perfect harmony with all of the animals, even snakes. There's a a 24-7 all-you-can-eat buffet right there for free. You don't have to pay for anything. It's just glorious in creation. They're also living in perfect concert with one another. This one flesh, intimate Union they have together in marriage is absolutely perfect. There is no need for marriage counseling. There is no arguing. They they have both embraced their roles as head and helper. They're not arguing over those things. And they've also embraced the command from God to make more babies and make more believers. They saw that as a blessing. And so perfect concert with one another, but more importantly than anything, they were in perfect concert with God. Do you know that in the garden, think about this for just a moment, before the fall, there was no need for disciplined devotion. They, they had no need to have quiet time to put it in on their calendars. They had no need to have a prayer meeting, uh, to go to a disciplined D group or a church gathering on Sunday. No need for it. Why? Because they were in a 24 hours, seven days a week, perfect presence of God. And they loved it. They they were delighted to worship God. This was the perfection of the world. Aesthetically perfect, morally perfect for two chapters But that's it, because everything changed. Let's look at the origin of sin. Genesis 1, or 3, 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. This is the dialogue of descent. It's a slow kind of fade here. And so the first question we have should pop in is who is the talking snake? Uh, We aren't told here 
who it is. But we know from later texts, uh, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, that this talking snake is, of course, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan himself. That is who this is. Um, Isaiah 14 says that uh, the devil was an angelic being and sometime after uh, creation, before the fall, um, that Satan wanted to not just be like God, he wanted to be God. And so God God cast him out of heaven, threw him down to the earth on his belly here. And so now he's hell bent on taking everybody else down with him and destroying God's good creation and destroying the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. Now, there's something I want you to uh, see here that I saw in my study this week, and I didn't come up with it on my own. I saw a commentary from someone else read it. That's okay, and that's how a lot of pastors see stuff is that other people have seen before us. But noticeably absent here in this dialogue between Satan and Eve, Satan uses the word just God to refer to God, whereas previously he has, God is referred to as the Lord God. Now, let me tell you why that's important. The Lord God communicated the, both the creator name of God and also the covenant name of God, both of those things, the Lord God. Well, here he's purposely not using the Lord, which is the covenant name of God because he wants to give Eve this idea that God is this this remote designation. He's so far away, not this covenant God. And so he never calls him the Lord God as we've seen previously. And Eve follows suit. She starts to refer to God in the same way that the devil does here too. So he slithers up next to her. He comes to her. He is subverting the, uh, the marriage institution, man leading wife. He doesn't go to the man, he subverts it and he goes to the woman. He knows what he's doing. He's very crafty at doing that. And as he comes, his scheme to destroy all of it was the scheme of confusion. Confusion. We're gonna see three things that he does in this confusion. He's going to bring confusion over God's word, over God's judgment, and over God's goodness. He's gonna employ these things and it would be wise for us to listen because this is exactly what he does to us today. So these are kind of sub points if you're a a note taker. Here's the first thing I want you to see here. The confusion about God's word. Look again, what Satan says to Eve. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, he's so crafty here because he's not denying God's word. He's not denying God and he's not even denying God's word. He just changed it in order to bring confusion to Eve Back in Genesis 2.16, God had said to them, or God never said to them they couldn't eat from any tree. He said, no, you can eat from 
every single tree except for one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree, knowledge of good and evil, represented moral autonomy. So um, if someone were to eat of the tree, then they could be the determiner of what was right and what was wrong. Uh, what, what, they, what they wanted in their way, right? They got to rule all of those things. They were the determiner of those things. And Satan knew if he could just get them to eat that, then they would take on that persona. They would know what's, they could determine, I think that's right, I think that's wrong. They could have it their own way and they can rule. That's, that's, the, that's what this tree would do. And we know that God was the one who determined what was right and wrong and what was good and evil. And so here is Satan tempting them to eat from this tree. It's a very intoxicating thought, isn't it? Hey, if you eat there, if you go eat here, then you get to say what's right and what's wrong. You get to have it your way, you get to rule. That's like Burger King theology, right? It's an intoxicating thought. We see that in the world today. This is where it came from, right here by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now Eve has a great chance right here in this moment to put Satan in his place. To say, hey, well, no, that's not what God said. But instead, our mother failed. Listen to what she said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve is now so confused by Satan, she starts to make revisions on God's word. She starts to omit words and take away words. She omitted the word every, and then she added the words, can't touch it. God never said that. He never said they couldn't touch it. That's not what he said. He said, eat of it. This is how confused that she is in her mind. And any time, church, any time you add to the word or you take away from the word, you're going to crash and burn. Revelation even says that, that anyone who adds or takes away from the word will not see the kingdom of God. It's a pretty serious charge. This command here was, of course, given to Adam back in Genesis 2. So clearly, God gave it to Adam. We know that he gave it to Eve because she's somewhat quoting it here, but he didn't do a very good job of it because she's all confused and messed up now. He's failed as a husband. He's present, but he's passive. He's got a great fault here, but let's keep going. Serpent's strategy was to confuse Eve about God's word. He does the same thing to us today. No different. Slithers up, whispers in our ear, did God really say? Did God really say that we needed to get married? Did, yes. <laughs> I like, that's what happens when you invite him in. I love it, it's great. Um, did, did God really say 
that we couldn't kind of move in together before that to see if this thing's going to work? Did God really say that marriage was only between a man and a woman? Did God really say that homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say that, that church was important, that you, that you couldn't, that you have to go to church to be a Christian? Did God really say that? Did God really say that going to church and even being there committing weekly, is that necessary? Did God really say? Did God really say that, that, that looking with the eyes is adultery with the heart? Did God really say that? Did God really say that we should share the gospel, serve, tithe, give, forgive other people, including our enemies? Did God really say, yes, he did to all of those things. But if you don't know God's word and you are depending on Pinterest quotes to inform you of what the Bible says, you are going to get confused. Don't take my word for it. Don't, don't, don't live your life based upon what someone told you about the word. Live it based upon the perfect word of God and we will be able to avoid the confusion of the enemy. The second thing that he does here is he brings confusion about God's judgment. God's judgment. Look what he says here in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman... You will not surely die. Now, God told Adam and Eve, chapter 2, verse 17, hey, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Like, that's pretty clear to me. But now here is a blatant rejection of divine judgment by Satan. He says, no, 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 you, you, you can eat that. You will not surely die. You won't. There's going to be no consequences to your sin. Scare tactics. You won't reap what you sow. God won't judge. That is fire and brimstone stuff. That, that's Satan. That's, the, that's Satan in the pulpit. That's the way it sounds. God won't judge any of those things. Church, I want us to see here that God has prohibited certain things for our good. Um, Prohibited things like drunkenness, like sexual immorality, sex before marriage, um, things like stealing and lusting and lying. He's prohibited. He says, don't do those things because there's danger there. And then here's what happens. This crafty devil gets up and says, no, 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 you, you will not surely die. If, if you aren't a part of a church, and if you don't, you don't commit to that church, you're, you're not going to die. I mean, that's just, uh, you don't need to think about stuff like that. God's not like that. God doesn't judge. You'll never find a spouse if you don't kind of bend the rules. You'll end up lonely forever. If you don't cheat a little bit at your job, fudge the numbers, and steal, you'll never make the money to feed your family. 
Plus, there's no consequences to that. So what's the big deal? It's this antinomian culture that we live in today that says obedience and holiness doesn't matter because Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. That's dangerous. That is extremely, extremely dangerous. Let us hear the words of our Lord here. God will punish. God does judge. Despite many false teachers that get into pulpits over the course of the church that get up and they, they never preach about God's judgment. They're scared to death people will leave. They won't come back. They won't tithe. They won't give. And don't we want to attract all people? Let's not talk about that fire and brimstone stuff. Listen, I want you to know when that pastor or whoever it may be gets into the pulpit and does not talk about the judgment of God, he's no pastor at all. Because that is that not the gospel according to Satan? You shall not surely die. It is. It is. God will judge. It's a part of who he is. In fact, if God doesn't judge, church, why would we ever have a need for the cross? Right? If I, if I don't have sin, why do I need salvation? I need salvation from God because God will judge. The last thing I see here that Satan employs is he brings this confusion about God's goodness. God's goodness. Genesis 3, 5, look at this. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now here, Satan employs this strategy to have Eve question God's goodness. And what he does, he's trying to get her hyper-focused on what God has prohibited as opposed to all that God had permitted them to have. Let me talk about God here a minute, Eve. He's, he's stingy. He is holding out on you. He's repressive. He is a killjoy and he is a fun sponge. That's all he's trying to do. There's a book uh, called Mere Christianity by, of course, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. And in that book, there is a story about a young boy who was asked the question, uh, what do you think about God or what is God like? Here's what this young boy said. As far as I can make it out, God is the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying themselves and then trying to stop it. This is exactly how some people see God as this not good God, a divine like hall monitor who's just walking around constantly. And if anybody's having a little bit of fun, he wants to squash it. Just follow the rules. Angry dictator, not good. I want you to know something. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God is always good. 
always good. There's never a moment throughout human history where God is not good all the time. And for those who love Christ Jesus, he's working all things for your good all of the time. Not only that, Psalm 23 describes God as this good highway patrol who's pursuing you and chasing you with goodness all of the days of your life. God is always good, church. And everything, all of his commands that he gives out are meant to secure a greater happiness than what the world offers. You see him rightly. Today, if you see God as not good and he's against you, you're buying the lie. When he's giving you all these commands, this next thing, and you say, no, I don't wanna do that. God's trying to steal my fun. You're being lied to by Satan himself. He's good all the time. Bottom line here, this is Satan's strategy in Genesis 3. This has always been Satan's strategy throughout the ages, and it still is today. He wants to bring confusion about God's word. He wants to bring confusion about God's judgment, and he wants to bring confusion about God's goodness. Those who are wise would be well to heed these warnings. Now, all of these things, of course, come to a head when we refer to this as the fall. Now, I want you to see something prior to the fall here. And three, uh, they have only listened to God. It's the only voice they've heard. But now, the dialogue of dissent, Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and no one listens to God. And when no one listens to God, bad things happen. (laughs) This is the truth in our lives. When no one listens to God, bad things happen. And usually on the other side is a lot of sin and it's a lot of suffering that follows. And that's exactly what takes place. Verse six describes that Eve, she took the bait. She didn't see the hook because that's what Satan does. He hides the hook. He shows the bait, hides the hook. She took it. Eight, gave to her husband, again, passive husband. The sin was actually greater than hers. She was deceived. He is uh, negligent. He knew the role. He was supposed to protect her, provide for her, to wash her with the water of the word. So Adam failed miserably here. But together, they were equally guilty from a human perspective the way that the text kind of rolls out it's really undramatic it just kind of says took an eight and kind of did some thing but reality is the implications were cosmic and eternal because of their decision to disobey God God's perfect world in an instant was ruined creation was ruined The harmony with creation was ruined. Man, woman, identity, gender, ruined. Man, woman, marriage, ruined. They start to fight and battle in the home. 
We know that pretty soon after that, you've got nakedness, you've got shame, you've got guilt hiding from God. You've got uh, the birth of greed and envy and covetousness in their children, murder, all these things, all these things as a result of their sin. They didn't die immediately, of course. They would later die physically as a result of sin. But what they did die is they died spiritually, immediately. They were dead to God. They had no spiritual pulse whatsoever. That's why we all die. Look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So Paul says that sin, condemnation, death came into the world through one man, Adam. But he says here it doesn't just affect Adam, it affects everyone else because Adam represented the whole human race. Every single one of us is born in death because of Adam. That means we were all born spiritually dead to God. That means no one was born into the kingdom of God unless they screwed it up or unless they chose to do something else. Born in death, it says it right here. And we also can't blame it on Adam, though, because we, too, choose sin. Looks good. It feels good. We are also on the hook here. This is the story of our sin as well. But let me switch up here because that's only only part one. The good news is this is not the end of the story. If you leave at halftime, you don't get to see how it ends, right? So the good news is even though we broke it, God is coming to fix the world. Genesis 3 goes on to tell us the origin of salvation. So here's how this kind of goes down. Well, Adam and Eve are hiding uh, in their nakedness and shame behind a tree, not looking for God, God came pursuing them. It's a great picture. This is exactly how you were saved, by the way. You weren't looking for God. You weren't pursuing God. You were hiding. I was hiding behind a tree in my guilt and my shame, and he came running for you. This is how good he is. This is what grace is. And every single time we sin as believers today, this is the same posture God takes on. He runs to us. He doesn't run away from us. So he comes, he finds them. Verses 9 and 11, he calls out to Adam. He doesn't call out to Eve. He doesn't call out to Adam and Eve. He calls out to Adam. Why does he call out to Adam? Because men, we are responsible for the leading of our families, of our wives. We are responsible for that. We're responsible for their sin said this last week, we will have to give an account to God of how we led our spouses. And when we don't do that, things 
go really, really bad. Verses 12 and 13, Adam and Eve start to play this blame game on each other. Like they're part of the, the victim culture, right? And everybody, it's, uh, we're victims. And Adam's doing it and Eve's doing it. They're pointing at each other, that kind of thing. And it's almost like if God was like, okay, please, you and your victim culture, you don't want to take any responsibility for what you're doing. I think he's kind of like, I've had enough of you. I've heard your case. It really doesn't merit anything. And so God kind of speaks into, in Genesis three fifteen. he's kind of done with Adam and Eve. And now he's going to talk to the serpent. Genesis three fifteen. this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God here preaches the Bible's very first gospel called the Proto-Evangelium or Gelium, however you want to pronounce that. This is the first good News concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Now notice, he's proclaiming, you broke it, I'm gonna fix it. Now, sometimes I teach like this, I'm like, wanted to show you what he doesn't say to, so you kind of get it a little bit clear. But here, his solution to fix a broken world, he doesn't come in and say, all right, we're gonna put in some better educational systems. We're gonna make the schools better. We got to get some, um, some better politicians in the office. We need to craft down at Big Pharma. We need to make better pills. We need to get out in the streets and do a lot of protests. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Here's a great plan. Let's do a bunch of humanistic um, self-help methods uh, like hashtags on the back of NFL helmets. We're going to change the world by doing these things. You know what? None of those things work. Trying to fix the world by doing those things is like polishing brass on a sinking ship. They won't work because they don't address the real problem. The problem is sin and the only solution is Jesus. And here is what his proclamation is. Hey, Satan, there's gonna be a day. It ain't today, but there's going to be a day where you and all of your minions will fall that they'll be crushed, you'll be crushed along with it. This woman here that you just deceived, one day her offspring, a seed of this woman, my seed, really, God says, he's gonna come. He's gonna come in in the form of a person. His name is going to be Jesus. And as he comes, he will not be tempted by the tempter. He will not be confused by Satan over God's word. He's going to live the perfect life. He's going to die to death and victoriously raise from the grave on the third day. And when he does it, yeah, you're gonna bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He will come. He came to destroy the works of the devil, John 1, 3. This is why Jesus came. He is the only solution for sin. And of course, we know a thousand, thousands of years later, he came. God's promise was made and God's promise was kept in the coming of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find life. 
Look at Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul's theology is trying to help us to see that the entire human race is divided into two types of people. Not far right, not far left, not Dems and Republicans. But all are either in Adam or all are either in Christ. One of the two. If anyone is in Adam and they're born conditions separated from God, then they die forever. But for all of those who put their trust, their belief, and their very lives in the hands of Jesus, they will have life forever. Life forever in Jesus. How do we get the free gift? (laughs) How do we receive Christ? He tells us right here, it's a free gift of righteousness. So it's not through fig leaves, ritual observance by being a part of a church, by acknowledging a creed or confession, getting into baptism. That is not how we receive Jesus. That's not how we get in Jesus. The only way to get in Jesus is by grace through faith, believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus Christ. We, we never presume at our church that, that everyone here in a seat has done so. Um, we, we preach to the church because that's what we're supposed to do, but we don't ever presume that everyone has trusted in Christ uh, for salvation. So today, um, man, that, that's going to be some way that you could potentially respond to the Lord today. If he's calling you, you're kind of hiding. You can see yourself kind of hiding behind the tree of your guilt and their shame, kind of running from God. He's, you, you want to get away from him in your life. But, but kind of oddly, you're starting to feel that God is kind of starting to come after you. And you're like, well, he's putting people in my life and I'm here at church and I'm hearing things that kind of make sense and I'm starting to understand the world better. Like that very well could be God pursuing you. So come on out of your hiding and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that today. You can have life in Christ. When we get done, uh, as you dismiss or we, we dismiss you out the door, there's going to be a, a team of people here. Um, they are the deacons of our church, but they are here to answer questions about anything that was said today, to receive prayer, um, or perhaps even lead uh, some of you to the Lord. Uh, we're going to respond now appropriately after reflecting on the cross and Jesus as our solution by observing the Lord's Supper together. So if you're a a deacon in the room and you've been assigned to help hand those things out, please go ahead and come on up and get ready to hand those out. Before we do this, let me say a couple of things. Um, Paul, Paul gave some instructions um, regarding this meal. And he, he, he says that there's an unworthy way to take it. 
And the unworthy way is to take it and not examine sin and not examine self. So, so if you're not doing that, you are told to not partake in it. Um, in other words, Paul would say, hey, this is not a child's play thing. It's a very serious thing. It's very weighty. It's also very, very wonderful. And so for this space, if you're a believer in the room, please enter into that space, examination of sin and self, and then we're going to hold on to it. And as I come back up, we'll all take this together. We've read the story today of how Satan confused and said to Adam and Eve, take and eat. And when they did, they died. Here is the good news of the gospel once again manifested in a cup of juice and bread where Jesus Christ on the night before he was uh, betrayed and he would be put on a cross, he says, take and eat and he reverses the curse. That is what is getting ready to take place. So ponder those things. Uh, We're going to hand those out and again, hold on and I'll lead through in just a moment.